Midweek Media Watch, that's now, was Colin Peacock. Kia ora, good evening, Colin. Hi, Karen. I hope you don't give me the same intro you gave to that Mars Rover audio. You know, don't <laughs> expect too much. <laughs> Underwhelming. <laughs> yeah, well, well, I didn't. I wasn't that underwhelmed. When you know it's coming from Mars or something, I think that's that's pretty good. Yeah, it's incredible, really, isn't it? Just mm. to know that it's been recorded in, in, on Sol One Two Five. Was it the day? In a Martian day? Yeah, mm. Sol Two One Five. Was got it backwards there. Hey, speaking of things that aren't under, uh, underwhelming, I've, if I could just really briefly say, I happened to tune in last week when I wasn't on and heard your. Um uh, the night that it was announced Hamish Kilgour had died and yes. uh, he'd loved the interview that you did and the fact you played one of my all-time favourite um, tunes, Born in the Wrong Time, uh, from The Great Unwashed, which is great because you know, throughout the day we had people dragging out the same old tracks from The Clean and that and he did a lot more other stuff and it was great to hear that and a lovely interview as well. So thank you for that. Oh, thanks, Colin. I appreciate it. Uh, let's start with, uh, well, it's been a rocky week so far and day to day for the TVNZ RNZ merger. Yes, more uh, media merger manoeuvrings uh, going on. So last week uh, we heard the Prime Minister saying uh, that they're going to rethink um, things over summer. She'll get her ministers to decide what's really important as they go into 2023. And she gave a round of sit-down interviews with political editors. And one of them, she told, uh, the Prime Minister told Newsroom's Joe Moyer, the merger is not our number one priority, so a bit of a signal there. And on RNZ's first up show yesterday, uh, Nicola Willis, National's deputy, uh, came on the programme and said she reckoned that was the death knell of the plan, that that was it. So I guess we will see. But she did say some interesting things. Her leader, Christopher Luxon, had earlier said last week um, they would definitely unpick the merger, much more definitive uh, way of speaking about it than he has previously. And... In that first up interview, I thought it was interesting. A couple of things. Nicola Willis is still using this figure of she she described it as three hundred and seventy million dollars of setup costs, and that really isn't what it is. There's forty million dollars in transition. Uh, the rest is operational uh, funding. Uh, but she described it as an ideological project, and actually said explicitly that she preferred TVNZ and RNZ to stay apart. Uh, she thought that was better for reasons of variety, plurality, uh, and so on. Um, and she also uh, gave an interview, Nicola Willis, to Sean Plunkett on his uh, outfit, The Platform, where she actually described the merger as crazy because there's a diminishing number of platforms for news. But I don't think that's quite right either. I think there's lots more outlets like The Platform, for example, uh, in startups in, in recent years. Uh, the problem is that, you know, they've all got declining audiences, revenues. Not many of them are really strong and powerful and effective, particularly in the difficult area of news. So it's kind of disappointing, I guess, to hear you know, an opposition say that because you know when they're in government, the same things will apply to them about the quality and presence of the media. So, yeah, a bit of a pity. Well, Colin, RNZ and TVNZ managers appeared together to be grilled, supposedly, by MPs today at Parliament. Were they? Not a whole lot. It was unusual and that the chairs and chief executives and a couple of other executives all appeared side by side. I think there were six of them together, uh, which is odd because usually they have their own meetings, their own annual reviews in front of uh, one of the parliamentary committees. And it's also odd because they've already had a, a review uh, this year. It was right at the start of the year for the previous year. So I guess they had one this year because when it, if it comes to, if it was literally a year later in February uh, or late January next year, that's right up against the point where, uh, unless things change over summer, 
they're supposed to be merging come March into one new uh, entity, Aotearoa New Zealand Public Media. So, yeah, very, very weird. So a lot of the time for the session was taken up with the introductory remarks by both of the chairs. So RNZ's Jim Mather defended RNZ's record over the past year under difficult circumstances and, you know, even facing a bit of hostility and lack of trust in the media and so on, backed the Aotearoa New Zealand public media uh, plan, uh, such as it is, and insisted that it would actually improve the wider media ecosystem and industry when, as we've heard, you know, a lot of people in that industry are talking against the merger, saying the, the reverse would be true for them. And then TVNZ's chair, Andy Coop, uh, told the committee in no uncertain terms he believed TVNZ was sound as a business. They just had their biggest month ever of digital revenue, still delivering high-rating shows and increasing listenership of the on-demand platform TVNZ+. And he also reiterated his support for Aotearoa New Zealand Public Media, the merger plan, but you, know, you would have to do that, wouldn't you, as chair of an organisation uh, who is uh, you know, answerable to the shareholding ministers you know, who are part of the government. Were there any difficult questions from MPs? Uh, yes, and there were, uh, when it came time for questions, of which there was not much, but a very blunt one uh, for TVNZ Simon Power, the chief executive, and this came from the National Party uh, broadcasting and media spokesperson Melissa Lee. Did TVNZ get a kids up yesterday, yesterday from, from MCH that the merger is most likely off? No, we did, we did not. What, 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 what? Yeah, yes, so that was her <laughs> saying, is it true that the Ministry for Culture and Heritage, which is overseeing this whole plan, was, you know, gave you a heads up that the merger is off? And Simon Powell just said flat out, no, we didn't. So I don't know quite why she asked that question. Um, but uh, the... Chief Executive of TVNZ, Simon Power, uh, was also asked by Melissa Lee, another curly one. She said there was a survey done of TVNZ staff which showed that around half of them didn't see themselves working for the company in a few years. Uh, and so that, yeah, that was slightly awkward. But then she followed up, Melissa Lee, with um, a question about something like, if I heard it correctly, about $20,000 worth of RNZ sort of merchandise or promotional stuff involving teddy bears. I'm not actually sure what this is, uh, but some sort of gimmicks that at some point TVNZ, uh, RNZ might have produced. Uh, and uh, RNZ Chief Executive Paul Thompson you know, pointed that out this was a relatively small-scale thing and actually done long before you know, the public media merger was... Um, was an issue, but you know the tone of Melissa Lee's question was, you know, do you care about this stuff more than you do about creating content efficiently for New Zealanders? And so, you know, not really a major issue in you know short time for questions. And at the end of the whole thing, she had more supplementary questions she wanted to ask, which there was literally no time for her other than to ask the question and for then uh, the committee to say, look, we'll try and get a written answer to, to that later down the track. So, yeah, not a particularly effectively uh, run meeting, I'm afraid. I haven't seen any teddy bears lounging about the place. No, I'm I, someone. I hope someone can fill me in because it completely <laughs> took me by surprise. But the point is, it, it was a small amount of money. It was some promotional project, not a huge deal, and really not worth you know spending a whole lot of time. And what's meant to be, you know, not just members of parliament. Um, well, it's meant to be members of parliament on our behalf as a parliamentary committee analysing the performance over the past year of these two state-owned um, assets, you know, you know not, not um, just trying to make um, points about, um, you know, that might be in the end kind of party political about the merger or the performance of the two entities. Mind you, 20k could go a long way around the place. Uh, did the committee's <laughs> scrutiny help shed light on the state of the broadcasters and the shape that we're all in for the future? Well, that was them? the... 
problem there wasn't wasn't a whole lot left for that it was there were some questions about um things like how they handled disinformation very specific one about um you know a green party mp asked about ethnic pay gaps and so on and the ethnic balance of shows that are commissioned the inclusivity and policies like that paul thompson actually said at one point that they were examining um news teams in hindi chinese and mandarin languages at rnz which which was uh, also a new thing um and the committee hadn't heard about that before but here's another example of a question that was kind of a waste of time really and this is act mp damien smith um he wanted to ask about the prime minister she made some recent comments in media interviews about why the um public media plan was being put in place where she hinted that you know rnz could at some point in the future collapse there was some prospect of that happening and uh, so he asked this question and the committee chair angie warren clark uh, then stepped in on that like this under an act national-led government this time next Christmas, this merger could be gone. Um, can you... Um, Damien, I'd just like to remind you we are discussing the annual review, which, which is a which... retrospective view. The the problem was that the last review in February uh, was a bit like this too in front of the same committee, not the exact same uh, mix of MPs or members of their committee that time though. But it is a bit disappointing because like I said, it is them as parliamentarians supposed to be checking out how these uh, outfits have done. After every annual review, there's a lot of written questions too, so there's a lot to go through and a written report which you would at the very least hope that the members would read and then bring up to what what progress has been made in this last year. And I didn't hear very much of that at all. And it was a bit different two years ago when it was straight after that RNZ concert youth network controversy. And then uh, RNZ and their review particularly were, were faced some very detailed questions and that was all put down in the report as things that ought to be followed up. And the next year they just kind of weren't. So a bit disappointing. I mean, MPs, to be fair have a lot of committees all through the day. I think about five minutes after this one, they were then doing a review of the new um, ethnic communities ministry. So, you know, they've got a lot of um, tracks they've got to switch between. But, you know, at the least I would have thought that reports written um, by the previous committee would be read, acted on and followed up, and that really didn't happen today. Now, you want to fill us in on reports of road rage? Yes, uh, or actually, um, road devastation even. Um, so clearly not the top news story of the day or, or media issue of the week, but uh, this uh, News Hub at 6 introduction uh, to a news item on Sunday uh, did get me going a bit. Dozens of motorists have been left devastated after getting caught up in a botched road repair north of Auckland. It took place on State Highway 1 between Walkworth and Wellsford. Lauren Hendrickson has the story. So that was the Dome Valley uh, with those road repairs. I think this has been fairly widely reported. Uh, some More than 40 cars, the story said, had um, you know gone into this tar seal that wasn't well done and ended up peeling off onto the tyres of the cars. But in that story, one single motorist told News Hub he was shocked, stunned and devastated. You feel as if your car has been destroyed, he said, and obviously... Not great for him, but I feel that that line of dozens of devastated motorists was a bit um, overstated and not really that strong a news story. It was pretty shocking, though, wasn't it? This busy section of State Highway 1 repaired so badly that it damaged cars and had to be shut down again. Yes, sure. And, you know, also this was they had to come back and repair it, redo it. So people did have to know that it was going to be closed down again. So a bit of a a developing situation. But I think... It was overcooked a bit by News Hub, but I did listen to Talkback Radio over the next couple of days, just bits and pieces, and heard people reporting similar sorts of things around the country uh, that, that this is happening. But 
the thing was, the online version of that same story by News Hub, when you look at it online, it's got a completely different headline. It says, National Simeon Brown calls for compensation for motorist vehicles damaged by peeling tar. And that was all based on a pair of tweets from National's transport spokesperson. He said that uh, Aotearoa's roads have become a joke, and he said, I hope NZTA um, is offering compensation to motorists who have had their vehicles damaged. But in that actual News Hub report that we heard the uh, intro from, uh, Laura Hendrickson, the reporter, actually had a lawyer in there saying that um, Waka Kotahi, NZTA as was, their failure to ensure a safe road surface meant that people were actually entitled uh, to some compensation if their cars were damaged. And in that same report, they had Waka Kotahi telling News Hub that people could actually go to Fulton Hogan to do this. And in the online story uh, that Laura wrote, there's full details of how to do that, who to contact um, and who to email at Fulton Hogan. And Fulton Hogan executive quoted in the story actually says, yeah, it's our responsibility. People should get in touch. We'll do it. So why would you headline your story on an opposition politician urging Waka Kotahi to pay out of the public purse? Because it's just not necessary in an act of kind of political grandstanding as well but I mean in the end just just like the wrong angle and I just thought that was uh, that was strange it's not the only news story about chip seal angst <laughs> that you've seen this week <laughs> no complete coincidence but there's another weird one uh, the Dominion Post uh, this is about roads actually quite close to where I live in Wellington people in the Crofton Downs neighborhood uh, were reported as being angry about their roads being fixed you know, and yeah, well, normally people want their roads to be fixed, don't they? Yeah, yeah. So what, what I reckon this is actually um, this is road rage, this is road repair rage. They're actually crossing <laughs> about it. Um, so the story had pictures of residents, you know, standing in the road, looking cross, not quite doing the arms folded thing, uh, but uh, not far off, and saying they were dumbfounded when they heard heavy machinery turning up in their road to start working on it. Um, and the uh, Actually, there's a quote here uh, I'll read to you. John Boyd was aghast, as were several of his neighbours. I actually think it's good to do prudential anticipatory maintenance of key infrastructure, but the people in Spencer Street were looking at the existing seal and asking, WTF? Uh, <laughs> was it actually quoted WTF? WTF, yeah, yeah. So you probably said it politely. But uh, the, the, the story had the council explaining, yeah, this is routine 10-year maintenance. You know, we wait 10 years, we go around, we repair the roads. But the residents were saying, oh, the road's fine. You don't need to do this. And it turned out what they were angry about was chip seal because they didn't want that rough, stony stuff because uh, I think they had that flat, kind of nice bitumen. And one guy can actually relate to this. One guy, uh, Cyrus Free, is his name, another resident of the street, uh, saying yeah, the chip seal had been sticking to his, their car tyres and damaged them. But he said he biked to work every day, and he said every time he rode over this new chip seal, he felt like he was going to have a flat tyre. So I can relate to that as someone um, who, who rides a bike. So in the end, I did actually learn a bit from the story about how and why the council decides at some places to do that flat bitumen and in other places to do that um, stone set uh, chip seal, which is less popular and you know with motorists and, and a bit more noisy. So in the end, I, I did learn, and I did learn. I had no idea that you could, if you you know if your car got damaged by a, a poor road repair, that you could actually uh, go and get compensation from it if you could identify the right place to go. Mm, I saw that one picture anyway. It did look pretty bad. The whole oh, the guy the... with the stick trying to prize the <laughs> yeah yeah. But I reckon I do think I have a suspicion that because the weather's been so bad, there's been a lot of wet weather. Then now there's going to be a lot of hot weather. And I have a feeling that if there's not much going on over summer, this could be this summer. This is like the shark story of 
the silly season. We're going to be seeing us all over the country, people standing by appalling potholes and, and dodgy rushed uh, road repairs as the um, sort of weird and variable hot cold weather, hot wet weather um, undermines it. That's my prediction for the summer. Could be wrong, but there we go. Oh, I hope not. I really don't. I do. <laughs> we don't need that, especially, you know, having a holiday and then there's massive potholes and tar all over your car. Yeah, well, come back for Media Watch in the new year. You can hear my road repair rage special. <laughs> uh, Colin, last time uh, we spoke, you talked about the Football World Cup and whether media would focus on the human rights aspects of Qatar once the football got underway. Uh, the death of a journalist uh, who was raising those issues really stunned the press pool there, obviously. Yeah, and this is a guy called Grant Wall. Uh, he made his name at Sports Illustrated magazine, which I think is a big deal in America, but not perhaps so much around the world. But yeah, he actually died during uh, the weekend's Holland-Argentina game, a thrilling game. He must have died quite close to the end because he was tweeting about this extraordinary equalising free kick that the Dutch did that anyone who follows the game would have seen. Amazing moment. Yeah, he died, uh, fell in the press box and died, died soon after. But he was one of the very few who has stuck with that issue of um, critiquing the World Cup, the organisation, highlighting the thousands of deaths and the mistreatment of migrant workers uh, that went into the building of the tournament. In a recent article, he said, they just don't care. Another worker died during the tournament, and it was barely mentioned. He said, the Qatari uh, World Cup organisers don't even hide their apathy over this. And days earlier, before he died, he'd been detained and interrogated at a game because he went in a, a shirt with a head of soccer ball surrounded by a rainbow. So that was a challenge to, you know, Qatar's laws on uh, LGBTQ plus people and their lack of rights in, in Qatar. Um, so he was one of very few who was prepared to sort of go all out and keep raising these issues even during uh, the tournament. And a few days ago, he was on podcast just uh, saying that he'd been ill and been to a clinic. He was getting bronchitis and a bit burned out. But yeah, a couple of days later, he actually died. And his brother is kind of alleging foul play. Uh, but I think the body is now back in the States and there'll be an autopsy. So if there's anything untoward, I guess we'd find out through that. But uh, it just seems like a, a very, very sad story at this oh, yeah, stage. Very sad. Uh, what, mark, what marked him out as a special journalist? Well, um, he decided to concentrate entirely on soccer, which was kind of an unusual move because he's most famous about 20 years ago. He did a, um, a front page Sports Illustrated one on uh, LeBron James, who was then in high school and picked him out as one to watch. So that turned out to be a good pick. But just I've heard all these podcasts because I'm interested in the World Cup and football. And a lot of them began, even in a sensational week of World Cup action, began with tributes to Grant Wall before they talked about any game. They all seemed to know him. Everybody seemed to like him. They said he would go on anyone's podcast or recording or help, never ask for any money. He just seemed like one of these people who... Um, who everybody admired and got on with and, and, and is absolutely shocked that he died at a, at a young age. I mean, he also did one thing unusual. Because he researched FIFA corruption, because there was a lot going on in the North American area, which ended up being important, uh, he once actually tried to run for the presidency of FIFA himself um, in a bid to highlight the corruption that was going on in the organisation. So, yeah, kind of a, uh, a journalist prepared to walk the talk, it seems. Well, uh, as to the game itself, uh, the beautiful game, just the final to go now on Monday. So it looks like the thrills and shocks on the pitch have overshadowed the human rights stuff. 
Yeah, in fact, there is one more semi-final tomorrow. That's France-Morocco, and then we'll know who plays Argentina in that final on, on Monday. But, uh, yeah, that definitely has overshadowed it. So apart from Grant Wall, there was one uh, exception I'd name. This is uh, Miguel Delaney, who's a sort of Irish-Spanish journalist, but he writes for The Independent in the UK, and he wrote a piece um, at the start of the World Cup, and then he wrote a follow-up this week saying, are you enjoying the Qatar World Cup? Well, here is the reality hiding in plain sight. And one line really stood out when he talked about the lack of rights for migrant workers and so on who've done so much of the work to actually get this tournament running. He said, um, when people say to me that these migrant workers seem to be happy and polite and nice during the World Cup when you meet them, he said, it's their job. If there's any kind of dissent, it won't be tolerated. And he wrote this, uh, he said, there are moments when it's difficult not to think that this is what elements of the American Deep South must have been like during slavery, an underclass of people overlooked but simultaneously taken for granted. And yet they underpin absolutely everything in the state of Qatar. And he said this world shouldn't exist in 2022 and not. Uh, It isn't one that a World Cup should be rewarding. Yeah, very true. Uh, The World Cup can create controversies and grudges that last for (laughs) decades, not centuries, like Maradona's famous Hand of God illegal goal, and that's still being highlighted in the media nearly 40 years later. (laughs) Anything like that this time? Well, a a lot less. I mean, there was one incident in a Japan match where the ball to all money appeared to be out of play, and the goal that resulted from it was was, uh, crucial in knocking out, I think, Germany, if I've got that right, been too many games. But you know, now we've got all this technology. We've got video assisted refereeing, we've got GPS technology that they're doing offsides now, where you see the sort of AI rendering of whether a player's offside by a fraction. It's quite amazing. And on the weekend sports show on Sunday on ZB, Jason Pine, who's a bit of a football freak, uh, he got an Aussie expert on the line who's helped develop this tech and it just made me realise uh, talking to uh, Professor Robert Orkey was his name um, just how much they're tracking players it's almost like the kind of ultimate form of surveillance. We call it skeletal tracking where they effectively track you know 20 plus different points on the body uh, and of course in football it's it's the scoring points of the body so you know anything of course as, as you know uh, apart from, from the T-shirt lying down on the arms, is, is a scoring part of the body. So they need to be able to track that accurately um, on every player uh, on the pitch, um, attacking and defending players in real time, uh, and also the location of the ball. So it's, yeah, it's a very complex undertaking. Mm, it, it sounds it. Is the tech good for the TV coverage and the billions of fans worldwide watching? Does it make it more compelling, do you reckon? Yeah, I think it does. I mean, it might, might be weird for the players they ever stop to think about this, how many hundreds of points on their body are literally being tracked uh, as they run around the pitch. But it kind of it sucks for the fans in the stands, though, because when they do these calls with the VAR technology and halt the game to look at it frame by frame, you know, in a truck somewhere with hundreds of video monitors and then tell the ref what to do, they have really no idea. You know, they see a screen that says a decision pending. But, yeah, for the viewer at home, it's, it is quite compelling because you do get to see the, the replays but it, it does relieve the pressure on referees to make these, you know, these potentially game-changing uh, mistakes. So that that is the main thing. But one thing that Professor Orkey also told Jason Pine was that this stuff, the machines could take over basically, and we could end up with a kind of robo refereeing. There's companies around the world instead of having say 20 points on the body that uh, that they're actually measuring, they're looking at effectively. Uh, a thousand or more or 10,000 points on the body that they can be looking at simultaneously. So it's really, uh, I think that, you know, we, we get to the point where there's potential for, you know, some automatic refereeing decisions to be made.
Yeah, but if that actually happens, I do want an actual upright, you know, robot on the field. I want to see the players enraged and circling the robot, you know, shouting at it. Um, I don't want it just to be a sort of screen somewhere else and an announcement over a tannoy if, if we are to have robo-refereeing. <laughs> yeah, that is yet to come. <laughs> uh, well, we spoke about um, tributes for the American journalist Grant Wall, uh, but tributes also this week for a journalist closer to home. Yes, um, long-serving New Zealand Herald political journalist and commentator John Armstrong. He died this week. He was um, an officer of the uh, New Zealand Order of Merit, I think 2016. He was given that award. He was only 68 uh, when he died, but uh, he'd uh, worked um, uh, and endured uh, many years with um, Parkinson's disease, but carried on working for, I believe, more than 20 years after it first um, became acute. Uh, you know, he used to contribute to things like the panel on RNZ, and it affected his speech and mobility, but didn't stop him uh, working and sharing his wisdom about things. And most recently, TVNZ was using him as an online commentator um, and an analyst. Uh, but yeah, lots of journalists reacting uh, this week to his death across you know different. Um, uh, generations, let's say, which just show how long he was in the game, and you know, so many saying he was a great mentor and advisor, and you know, reacting with real sadness to his death in, in social media and a couple of the obits that have been published. And what about you? Did you know him, or maybe you annoyed him on Media Watch? Uh, no, I didn't know him, and I don't know whether I annoyed him, but I do have, I don't remember this very clearly, it was a long time ago, but he did ring me up once to tell me that I'd done some, something about the coverage of a political story, which he thought I'd sort of fundamentally misunderstood the realities of either that story or, or how it worked in the gallery. And he was very polite and not patronising and kind of invited me to come over and actually talk about it, and you know, he could tell me a few things about the gallery and how they work and I didn't take up the offer at the time I probably should have but one other thing I would that I'd like to mention is that he stuck up for Nicky Hager um, when a lot of other journalists were kind of slightly indifferent to the fact that he was under attack from where he was being you know, surveilled and by the, the SIS and police and so on and had to go you know have very long legal battles over that John Key was calling a I think it was a screaming left-wing conspiracy theorist things like this after his lid lifting books came out but after the hollow men and dirty politics which which kind of lifted the lid as well on the way the media interacted uh, attack bloggers and so on because they were sources of juicy stories. John Armstrong said um, the revelations in dirty politics were the closest we'd had to a New Zealand Watergate and Hager's book does go to the heart of government. He said um, no one has ever produced the evidence to question the ver- uh, veracity of the content of Hager's books. In short, he is credible. And I think it was it was good of him to do that at the time because, yes, he was a bit of an outsider for other journalists you know, in uh, mainstream media, particularly writing about politics, who, who weren't quite sure what they made of of Nicky Hager. But um, yeah, John read the books, knew the context, and was prepared to um, to make that judgment in public. And what have people said about his own contribution to journalism? Well, one former e- editor of his was Gavin Ellis at the Herald. Uh, previously, he said John always knew the difference between comment and analysis, which is pretty important these days. He eschewed the former and carried out the latter with intelligence, fairness, and a deep understanding of the workings of democracy, said Gavin Ellis. And then the next editor at the Herald after Gavin was Tim Murphy, who's now a co-editor at Newsroom. And um, he uh, wrote... Um, uh, a, a quite long and, uh, and quite personal piece, you know, saying there'd be many journalists who've had substantial longevity writing on our politics, you know, many brave columnists calling things as they 
see them, but um, he was one of actual great uh, erudition, uh, trusted and well-regarded by much of the political spectrum. And I like the way Tim wrote this. He said, uh, John guided us through an era that spanned Merv Wellington to Mojo Mathers, Bill Ralston to Paddy Gower, and Winston Peters through to Winston Peters. Um, <laughs> and as an aside, Tim says John was always right about Peters, saying in a farewell column, Peters' career was material for some kind of Shakespearean tragedy or the psychologist couch or both. And Winston Peters himself uh, on social media has um, honoured John, said John will always be remembered as a distinguished journalist who articulated both sides of a story without personal influence, allowed the reader to decide the merits of a political position, and his longevity was testament to his dedication and professionalism, and he will be missed, says Winston Peters. Well, that's a great tribute. And finally, Colin, you heard a seasoned journalist telling the PM what to read over the summer. On, I was, happened to be listening to News Talk ZB, uh, Patrick Smelly came on and started talking to Heather Duplessy Allen on the Drive Show about a summer reading list for Jacinda Ardern. Um, so it turns out this is something that's done by the New Zealand Institute of Economic Research, and this year um, a business desk is involved with it. Uh, but I, I think it, it appeared to take um, the concept of it, a summer reading list for the PM, also appeared to take uh, Heather Duplessy Allen by surprise. Jeez, this feels patronising. Is it meant to be? Uh, it's something I've been doing for a few years now. Um, business Desk is sponsoring it this year, so that, that's why I've taken the opportunity to, to, to talk about it. There are six titles here. The likelihood that the Prime Minister will read all, let alone any of them, is probably fairly low, but it, it's intended to be an, uh, an interesting and thought-provoking uh, set of titles which runs across a bunch of things. So who's actually telling the Prime Minister what she should be reading over the summer? <laughs> yeah, well, it is it is the New Zealand Institute of Economic Research, which, as I now discover, has been doing this every year for a few years. The McGuinness Institute also has uh, a similar thing, or it m- might even be part of the same project. They couched it as a sort of public good thing. Um, and there are a bunch of journalists that went into the selection of this particular list. There was Mickey Forbes was one, uh, the tech writer Peter Griffin, I think, was the chair of this particular panel, and, and Patrick himself and a couple of staffers, I think, from that uh, New Zealand Institute of Economic Research. But uh, it just yeah, just still seems to me to be a rather heavy-handed thing to do. So, you know, time off of the Prime Minister. Here are weighty tomes you must read in your, you know, short time off before coming back to lead the country. What's on the list then? Ah, right. I'm going to go and have to find it now. But um, yeah, here we go. So there's a range of titles. But actually, this was the one that uh, Patrick Smelly himself picked out as the kind of main highlight. But the book I wanted to talk about most today was was one called The End of the World is Just the Beginning, since this, mm. this, is, a, this is where an American guy called Peter Zion, it's probably not a, a book that's going to cheer you up, uh, because basically the cell is 2009 was the last great year for the world. Basically, uh, it's, it's saying countries are going to have to uh, make their own goods, grow their own food, secure their own energy, fight their own battles. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't sound very escapist to me. <laughs> no, I, I know, doesn't it? I mean, the, the, in fact, in the statement, they had a release function of some sort and, and put out the statement. So the NZIER chief executive, Jason Shoebridge, is quoted in the statement saying, the Institute supports New Zealanders taking time over summer to read and discuss important issues. Uh, the list was prepared as part of the public good program of the NZIER, um, uh, promoting better understanding of our important economic challenges, etc. So, um, yeah, I mean, Patrick... Uh, seems to think it's it's a good idea, but it just—I mean, 
I don't know, my feeling is, you know, if you think it would be a good idea to persuade New Zealanders or interested people, here's a bunch of our selections, here's six books you might want to consider reading if you've got the time, but to to, to sort of sheet it home to the Prime Minister feels a, um, a little bit over the top to me. The, the other books actually on the list, there's one called Data Story, Explain Data and Inspire Action Through Story by Nancy Duarte. Uh, one called Not Now, Not Ever, 10 Years On from the Misogyny Speech of Julia Gillard, um, which might be interesting for political types. Um, How to Loiter in a Turf War by Coco Solid, um, a.k.a. Jessica Hansel, uh, which is an interesting one. And also uh, Monty Suta, the uh, military historian's written, I think it's a novel called uh, Kawai for Such a Time as This, vividly conjuring a vision of pre-colonial Māori society. Um, so, yeah, uh, it is quite a range of books. They do sound interesting, but... Um, yeah, just, just feel that Prime Minister might feel a bit put upon being told to use her um, summer break to, to read these. Especially on the beach. <laughs> yeah. Mm. <laughs> All right, Colin, thank you very much. Will, will you be back next week? Uh, I think it's one with Hayden next week. It'll be his go. Um, and we'll be doing it. We've got one last program on Sunday uh, for the year. We will we'll do our traditional sort of wrap-up, mash-up, and, and look back on the year. Oh, that's good night, and uh, Happy New Year, Merry Christmas, and all of that from us. So thank you for all your midweek media watches this week, this oh, year, that's, that's no say. problem, man. But, you know, I could come back, and if, if Hayden comes back, I could give him a, a list of summer reading if, if you want one. <laughs> Go on, then. <laughs> you can tell us what it is next week. Thanks very much, Colin. Cheers. And Merry Christmas. Happy New Year to you. And you.